Hello and welcome to the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. I am Jensen Beeler. And I am Quentin Wilson. Today we've got a number of topics for you and I think, Quentin, I think the first one we should get to is this weekend you and I went to the Omra Wormra co-race at Portland International Raceway. Which was unique in that it was the first time that the two Northwestern amateur racing clubs had gotten together and co-mingled as one. And I, I don't know if it was ever, but certainly the first time in many, many, uh, either years or decades. Yeah, right? modern time as well. Um, there has been, and this is what happens in club racing, there, there's a there's definitely big competition between clubs. And because these two clubs are close, we're talking the distance between Portland and Seattle. Uh, it's of note, three hours drive. Uh, a lot of different racers go to each different club. Um, so... It, it's an interesting dynamic to have the two get together for the first time in a very long time, if ever. Uh, so we wanted to see what that was all about also just because the grids were huge. So there were between 200 and 220 separate racers in the paddock, which is, I'm not saying unheard of, but it's been a decade at least since Omra saw a grid, um, consistent with that yeah i'm gonna get i'm gonna say something that will get me in trouble it felt like an afm race weekend which is of note right Right. because afm being the northern cal um club has for a long time i'd say arguably been the strongest club in the united states yeah right i don't know if you how you quantify that other than the amount of fast racers that come out of it and go through the ranks to go to ama or just the level of competition if you are outside of the club and you go there to race, which I have done, it's always high, always high level. Yeah, I remember when I lived still in San Francisco, I, I had a brief moment where I thought I wanted to get uh, my AFM license and, and start doing that and just start throwing money away. And I remember looking at the novice 1000cc super stock time. I just want to see like, where would I, where would I go? Where would I end up? Like at a racetrack at Thunder Hill, knowing that that was a track I was pretty good at. And I think the the number one guy was doing like 157s there, which is just obscene. Which is just obscene on a on a super stock like R1 or a super stock Honda. Yeah, but to me that's that's not bad. I mean, it's like no, that, that's that, decent. No, that's the thing. That's, that's not even that's scary. a fast time. I know it's fast, but it's not even scary to me because what doing now they're well into the 40s somewhere, right, or oh, close, knocking on it. I don't Sca- know what a professional that's, would do there. Yeah, that's scary fast, right? Knowing knowing the the fastest time I ever went around that. Uh, 15 years ago on a 125 with a national level race series called USGPRU or GPRA so long ago, uh, I hit a, like a two minute lap time on a 125, mm-hmm. which was at the time hauling the mail on a 125, but not good enough to win the race. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. But knowing how fast that is relative to being on a thousand, yeah. you know, the fact that they were able to, that that's a good to decent, but that's novice. Novice, novice. That was, that's, that's the thing that was killing thing. me. That sure. was the thing that was killing me. I sure. was sitting there like, I could see expert class, sure, but novice. Just so, the fact that you were deciding that you wanted to try and club race on a thousand first is a bit disturbing, though. Well, that's what I have. Yeah, I know. It's what's that's, in my garage, right? That's that's for somebody like myself. It's just always as disturbing to see people throw themselves to the wolves of big bikes right off the bat. Right? And, oh, and that was that was the the second part of that kind of analysis when I started looking at the other classes where like a SV650 would fit in or. I even flirted with like, you know, like a 250 GP sure. two-stroke kind of sure. bike because those look kind of fun. And I think I'm too big of a guy for 125. I don't know. Uh, I, I've seen large people ride 125s. You might be right. They, the AFM, again, another reason why it's awesome is they had a 250 production class, which allowed all manner of right. TZR and NSR 
based street bikes to mm -hmm. ride it, which was really cool. And even though you might be too tall for most of those, eh, you'd be just fine. Yeah. Especially to cut your teeth, do it for a season, sell the bike, go get, get to the next rung. Right. But there's never any consistent hierarchy for somebody starting. There's no way to like, there's no, it's a fascinating thing to watch. And it would see so many people get ruined by getting on the wrong bikes. This, this jumpstart is probably something I wanted to hit on later, but what would you recommend for someone like me who wants to get into racing where they should start? What? Cause you've definitely been around the paddock. You've, you've done your own amateur racing. Like teach me Obi-Wan. Well, what I, I tell everybody and it sounds, it sounds laughable, but anywhere you are in the nation, there's usually a, a series that races on go-kart tracks with smaller machines. And as bizarre as it sounds, even though we're talking about you not fitting on a 125, you wouldn't believe what you'd learn, even as a large person, riding around on a 50cc to 80 to even some of its 125 four-strokes on go-kart tracks with bikes that are a little bit more made for that. Um, the Mini Moto series is what Absolutely. About. Not Mini Moto like the teeny little Mini Moto. Right, right, right. not a Polini. Like a 110, not a 150. Bike. Right. And that could be on, a, when I was doing it in the late 90s, it was YSR 50s. That was the core. Since then, it has morphed. Shoot, there's Groms in these series, which right. is a, probably a perfect thing for somebody uh, that is your size, right? You could get on it. Of course, it's not going to be comfortable, but you learn how to deal with all the problems that come with racing in general on a slow scale, on a small scale, on a, on a less dangerous scale, right? You, you learn the ins and outs of working on the bike, dealing with the problems that come from crashing. Uh, but then you, you're not doing it on machines that are going on hundred to 150 miles an hour and obliterate themselves. You crash on a, on a, even on the fastest corner of most go-kart tracks and your bike slides and then right. maybe tumbles a couple of times. And right. because it's a, a very light machine and, and you have uh, outfitted it correctly. It's not, it's usually not a big deal. Right. So that's an interesting dynamic that a lot of people don't realize is that from a mental standpoint, you build strength, your own personal mental strength on dealing with problems, whether it be getting passed on the inside by that a hole that you don't want to be passed by or, uh, leading a race and learning not to look behind you. That was like one of the first things I learned because I looked behind me and then looked forward and I crashed and going into a corner. That was one of the first races I was in. You can't teach that. How do you teach that? Right. You got to go do it. And it was a hell of a lot better to do it on a YSR 50 than it would be on a 600 or, you mm -hmm. know, what, whatever you choose as your, as your first bike. So I say this to everybody, if you can get time on dirt bikes, get time on dirt bikes, whether it be just small amount, uh, that that's a good thing to start with even before road racing. But if you, if you're dead set on road racing, you're not going to get into any other form, uh, find a, find small, small bike tracks, find a small race series, and there's plenty of them out there. The problem is that it's hit or miss where you're going to find it. So if you're in Chicago, I don't know what to tell you, but I know in the Southern California area in the Bay area in the, uh, uh, Northwest, there are series that do that. Sure. And if you can't do that, then you go to supermoto. Right. Okay. That's, that, the, that's what I was going to say. That's the next, right. Yeah. That would be, and that would be the next progression in general, but that for me would be also another good way. Fairly inexpensive bikes aren't going to break the bank if they crash. The issue is that you'll see a lot of people getting hurt on supermoto more so than smaller bikes. Cause right. you are on machines that you're way high up in the air and you're, it, when you're going fast, you're sliding around a little bit more 
or you're going to get to that point, hopefully, which means there's going to be room for, for crashing that ends up being a little bit more serious than keeping your wheels in the line and, and just using momentum as you should be on a, on a YSR 50 or, or equivalent. All right. Sure. So that's, that's what I say. That's the start. And then we can go on, I can go on for an hour on how I'd like to see progression from there, but we don't often have that. What we have is some testosterone addled mid twenties dude that says, I'm riding my R6, I'm on the street and I'm fast. Mm -hmm. He's figured out, or she has figured out how to get a knee down on the street. Maybe, maybe it's gone to that extreme right. and they say, I'm fast and they get out to the track and they are in the worst possible place on a 600 in club racing, right? That's where the, the, the bulk of the, it'd be like the bell curve of racers. That would be the bulk of them are is in that 600 class. Mm -hmm. And then, it, and that would runs, even if in, in the novice, it runs the gamut of skill sets. It runs the gamut of, 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 of temperaments. It's a, it's a problem. So I tried to stay out of that as much as I possibly could for as long as I could until you can get to the sharp end of it. Once you're somebody that's quick enough to be at the sharp end of a 600 class, you largely are out of the trouble. It's hard to explain, but you're, you are now at the, at the, and the place where the racers around you are relatively safe and know what they're doing. Whereas if you're mired mid pack, you're, you can't, you don't know who oh, you're around. It's I horrible. totally, I totally get that analogy as, as a track day enthusiast. When I go out with my friends, like in a beginner class, just helping them with their lines sure. or just falling around, or even if we're just dicking around because a couple of our buddies are down there and we want to ride with them. Yep. I notice definitely in that, in that beginner class, you get some sketchy people and they're making sketchy turns and they're not holding their lines. They're not holding their throttle you see these crashes that just happen for no reason. And then you kind of go into the intermediate class and it's okay. It's the guy who has maybe a little too much testosterone, made it too much of a pissing contest. He's, he's making bad passes cause he's trying to shave a second off his lap time, even though his skill sets, maybe not there, his ambitions outweighing his talent as yep. Casey Stoner would say. Sure. And then you get into the advanced class and you see like, okay, everyone's holding their lines and like, the danger level is really just like, Hey, that guy, he's just a lot faster than me. The closing speed between a, 125 gp bike and a thousand cc you know, super bike are, are pretty different at some tracks and it, it's a different kind of thing but the skill level is there yeah so it doesn't matter when the thousand cc approaches the, right. the 125 they've been around enough times to know okay right. this is coming i'm going to be able to get around this by a guy when it whether it be mid mid straightaway or right as you're coming into the corner yeah. And that you just treat them as the rolling chicane, whoever that might be. Right. And it, you get that after a while because you're experienced. Right. Well, that's the problem with club racing. You don't have that. You have, especially, of course, in the novice class, with the novice 600, it's, hey, man, it's wolves. It's wolves in not a, not a uh, good way, yeah. right? There's a different type of wolf. What do, you, what do you think about then with, especially now that the manufacturers have more of these bikes out, the... 250cc, 300cc, of course, four that's stroke, the way to do ninja, it. Sure, if you're going to gravitate CBR. towards getting to the bigger tracks mm -hmm. from the go kart tracks, mm -hmm. from the supermoto, from the riding around on the dirt, uh, which is where your good base is going to be, then you get to the big track. Well, what bike do you get? Even as somebody say in your late 20s to to late 50s, you know, there's people out there that do it. Well, what am I going to go do? Well, depend, obviously, sometimes it depends on the cost. If you're a sure. Ducati enthusiast and you just love your Ducati and you're going to go out there, you're like, yeah, fair enough. And if you're a late 40s person that has a sound mind and you want to go out there, I, I don't recommend that either. I will tell them, no, get out on, if you're small, 
absolutely try and find a 125. I, I'm too much of a 125 enthusiast to not suggest that. Mm-hmm. I enjoy them too much as machines that teach so much more than what a four-stroke street bike 250 will teach you. You will learn exponentially more being on a motorcycle that is purpose-built to race. And you'll be learning how to deal with the, the mechanical aspects of a bike that is purpose-built to race. And while you might be frustrated having to, to deal with a two-stroke top end, the stuff you'll learn by having to deal with that transfers very easily into working on the bigger bikes. And it just makes it that much easier once you do that. Sure. So speed, all from, that. from a, from a easy to deal with standpoint, from a easy to load and unload, I, you know, I'm thinking the practical applications, a lot of people, they get into it. They don't even know how to tie a bike down in the back of a truck yet. They want to race. And I get it. I mean, there's, it's there. It's, it's for some people, it's that attainable. But there's little things like that that help, whereas the person that goes and buys a 600, throws in the back of their truck, barely, gets the track, drops it out uh, because they haven't figured out how to use a ramp correctly, possibly hurts themselves, hurts the bike, has to go home. I've seen it all. I've, se- I've seen mm-hmm. this stuff. It's unreal. Whereas the people that have grown up with or been uh, involved with the smaller bikes, they learn all these little things a little bit easier so that by the time they gravi- graduate to the bigger it's, it's great. So in this case, what, going back to your point, is a 250, say, Ninja, 250 Honda, whatever that current crop, the, Honda, uh, the Yamaha 3, mm, R3, R3, things like that. Absolutely. For sure. Of course, you're going to, well, I'm going to outgrow that. Yeah, yeah, but you need to. You need to outgrow it. You need to be on it and you need to learn on it. And then you need to outgrow it because you might get out there and find that you're, you're so fast and you might be winning the races. But I guarantee you there might be somebody out there that's faster than you and you're going to learn you're going to learn momentum, which is more important than how to twist the throttle. You need to learn how to be, to have good corner speed, which is what the 125 would teach you, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. the way the engine characteristics of a 20, 125, the 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 lightweight, the the stature of it, the low. There's that is what lends itself to oh, yeah. learning how to go really fast. Absolutely. Whereas a 250 Ninja would be close, but not quite. There's still really good things. Like for instance, this past weekend we ran into uh, AMA Pro Devin McDonough who had gotten out on a friend's 250 or 300 Ninja, something like that. I can't remember the exact. And he was, he was effusive about how awesome it was. He was having so much fun. He's like, I didn't have to use the brakes. And I was like, I, I'm, I don't think he it was hyperbole. I can see Devin reeling into turn seven, which is normally mock speed on a 250 because you don't have the closing speed and just pushing the front on the way in and dragging as much crap as possible and downshifting and beating the thing to within an inch of its life uh, all the way through it. I could see him doing that without using the brakes or very little bit. It, it, they're fun. There's a lot of fun to that for an expert. Uh, so don't think that just because it's small and you quote unquote outgrow it doesn't mean you can't have a lot of fun on it. And again, learn all the, all the other things you need, including race craft, which is a whole nother Sure. That's a whole nother discussion Which to have. you don't get in a tracking environment Yeah, and you're all. never going to get race craft. And if you're thrust into a 600cc environment, yeah, maybe a little trial by fire, you're going to get some of it. But you won't get nearly as much of it as you would in a pack of 250s, having to deal with the draft, having to deal with positioning on track. You know, now every time you go around the track like you do on a track day, are you taking the pole line? The pole line being the perfect uh hitting every marker exactly line. You're not, you can't always do that when you're racing. That's the, that's one of the main problems of the racing is you've got to then figure out 
how to navigate the track off of the pole line going just as fast. It's a pretty impressive thing, right? When you can do that. So doing that on 250s is, or YSR 50s or something smaller and learning it, or at least learning more of it than you normally would by just blasting out there on a thousand. It's a big deal. I'm always astonished. It's for me being a leader bike owner and that's what I take to the track and that's what I know. Whenever I get on a 600 or something smaller, it always strikes me like, corner speed corner speed corner speed keeping that momentum because it is such a different night and day and i never i, I spoiled myself in a way with with having an, an r1 i never really learned that so i have to go back now as a more mature rider and learn that that craft that i didn't get earlier which i always find really interesting question i have for you after listening to all that was so as so i'm a track day rider how many how many track days do you think someone should have under their belt or how many tracks should someone go to before considering to get a, a racing license wow that that's too or just jump right into it straight from well the street. If it was, like i said going into the mini bike racing uh you know a few track days is good well let's 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 assume that most people are probably going to take the the most obvious path and they're just going to hop on uh, a 600 cc or an sv650 and go to their local omra afm where okay. uh if, if if that's the case and you're and they're dead set on it, I, I would say that they need at least a year of I would recommend at least a year of track days. Um and Why? to the point where they are an accomplished it's you know, that doesn't even always equate. A year of track days, what if you're just doing uh mid mid group? There's usually in track days, let, let's talk about that. There's usually a A, B, or C or you know, uh, fast, medium, slow, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So if you're just a medium, you've been doing it for a year and you're not comfortable going out in the fast group, you absolutely should not be racing, right? Absolutely, like w without question. Whereas if you're out in the fast group at track days and you might not be the fastest, but you're comfortable around them and you can hold your line and do all that, absolutely, you should be ready to go to the next level, which would be racing, right? Mm -hmm. So that that would be what I'd say. That it really is going to be different for every person. Certain people pick stuff up a lot a lot quicker than others, sure. right? And it's tough to to just say Blake's statement that everybody should go for two to years and uh, to to track days. That's not necessarily the case. I know some people that one track day and already they are fast. Even though I was making fun of that that dude that was getting his knee down on the street, I've seen the the same type of person hey i got my knee down the street and you kind of blow them off but then they get out to their track and sure enough they're right there they're not they're not perfect but holy crap they're way better than most right. so it's it depends on natural talent it mm -hmm. depends on on other experiences some people that have raced dirt bikes they're just as weirdo when they're out on the on the track as a beginner but they have a better overall understanding about vehicle dynamics so they can sometimes quick get to the quicker uh get quicker quicker mm -hmm. if you will interesting uh let's switch gears a little bit and go back to the omer weekend okay what would you say is the overall state of club racing in the united states well after having seen this it was heartening uh this whole year has been fairly good for them but i went to the omer race i believe it was in july i can't remember and it was pretty sparse. Yeah. It wasn't even a, it wasn't even a bad weekend. It wasn't raining. There was no issues, and there wasn't that many people there. And it was pretty, pretty disheartening. And I can't remember what the situation was. Whether there was another race going on or something else that was drawing other people, but it was, it was worrisome. Whereas the first race of the season, I actually participated in. I was lucky enough to have a friend that 
that allowed me to race a, a, a bike in, a, say, the SV650 class, right? And there was a lot of people. And I think that continued generally through the year. But we're still not at a, a, a we're not in a way that every race weekend is, is filled. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's the case that they're filled everywhere either, but it would be interesting to see some numbers yeah. with like AFM. AFM's always strong. They have a huge pool of people, huge pool of people from the Bay Area, from the greater Bay Area, megalopolis, right? And that helps quite a bit. Also the weather, also the tracks are amazing. They're really awesome. They're very enthusiast-based track, every single one of them, right? Yeah. Uh, and maybe maybe not Buttonwillow, but you know, the rest of them are pretty good, so. Yeah. I think I think we had a missed opportunity too, because our, our friend Rick was up with us on the race weekend and he's an AFM, he has an yeah. AFM race license yeah. and totally, totally even occurred to me to ask him what was going on there. I know talking to some other people that there's a lot of, like Weira has declined. Sure. And I know CCS has, has declined and you kind of have like these kind of pockets of other racing series. Willow ever... Springs Motorcycle Club went away a couple of years ago. There's Disappeared. A, just and that that's a really scary thing. You're in Southern California, the hub of all things motorcycling in the United States for all intents and purposes, right? All the major manufacturers are based out of there, and you can't even keep a club racing. You know that I mean we're talking WSMC was very old right yeah i that's funny because you bring that up because now it jogs my memory i did have a discussion with someone that knew that situation better and the way it was explained to me that was very much an issue of uh how it was run sure. who was running it sure because uh, that the, that whole racetrack's operated by Bill Huth and that yeah. right i know but no doubt no matter what the fact that it wasn't immediate once it went away Moto West GP came on. I raced with Moto West GP in 2013 and it was okay. There were some of the players that I had, I hadn't seen in many years. I used to race with Willow Springs motorcycle club, uh, 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago. So I, I went there cause I really dearly missed Willow Springs. I love the track. It's a wonderful mm -hmm. place. Both of them. Hey, streets of Willow, Willow Springs, yeah. uh, in, in Chuck Wall. I've been on Chuck Wall. It's phenomenal. But now Moto West Grand Prix, I don't know what they, I don't know which tracks they go to. I, I believe they go to, um, streets of Willow, Willow Springs and possibly Pahrumpf. I, I don't know what, what they're doing now, but it's fractured. It isn't what it should be, which is a, a solid series that you know is going to run between, I don't know, maybe six and 10 races a year. It used to be WSMC was, I believe 12 races a year, 12 months. Serious. It, yeah. it was a gnarly thing. And a lot of people would show up back when in that I, When I lived in SoCal, it was a big deal. Right? Yeah. So that that is an th interesting thing to watch that and how it had become fractured. As far as the other stuff on the East Coast, there always seems to be grids. And I don't think it's too problematic, but the economy hit it pretty hard. Sure. And people are choosing. I, I don't necessarily think it's a problem within motorcycling, but I think it's a problem within adventure sports in general, some people are just choosing not to spend their money on motorcycles, even though they love motorcycling, they're going to go rock climbing. They're going to go, uh, uh, skydiving. They're going to go wakeboarding. They're going to do other stuff. And that's where our biggest problem in the industry is, is trying to get those people back into the fold. Well, even, even I, the way I look at it, motorcycling is an expensive hobby, expensive sport, expensive passion. One that I've obviously fully subscribed to, but even I haven't made that, that dip into racing because mostly of the time and money. Factor it's a money it. funnel. Right? Yeah. That's why I don't do it all the time. I, I pick and choose the races I do because of money. Right. I, I don't necessarily want to, I, I I'm not, I'm not young enough to 
to have the possibility of being able picked up by a race team, right? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm fast enough to qualify for an AMA race, but but generally I'm not going to be getting uh, sponsorship. Yeah, no one's going to give you money for it, right? So I then I have to decide whether I'm going to go spend two thousand dollars a race weekend racing the local series, or save my pennies and do one Moto America race a year or something like that, which frankly fills my cup. Mm-hmm. And then it gets you in the big show and you get to go race a track that you're not familiar with. And so that, that's where the, that's where the problem is. It's like somebody like myself, why am I not racing Omer every weekend? I, I just don't necessarily see the value in it. I don't, I love gridding up and I get that rush, but it's not enough of a pull when I can go out to my garage, get my dirt bike, take it wherever, not spend a lick of money other than gas and go have a lot of fun mm-hmm. for a lot longer of a time it fills a different cup, but it certainly fills it enough to satiate me. Whereas mm-hmm. going there and getting that there, it's a very, it's very acute. When you race, when you're on the line at a road race, there's nothing like it. Absolutely nothing like it. Not, not by a long shot, but the risk reward or the, the cost per mile sometimes isn't there. So that's, that's the problem we're facing is people like myself choosing other forms, choosing other things. And not really wanting to deal with, with the local club or sometimes it's politics. Sometimes it's, it's, it's ancillary things to the racing where you just don't want to have to, to deal with it. Right. So that it's an interesting thing to see what, what, what is healthy and why isn't it healthy? What is the expectation? Well, seeing 200 to 220 people show up from the Northwest to one track, a track that a lot of people consider boring because it only has nine turns, but is incredibly exciting because the nine turns are frankly surrounded by walls and uh and some really challenging corners it's a it's a great place but it's not the pinnacle like the ridge which is up in washington which is what wormer race is at is ostensibly a better track it's a it's a it it offers a lot more challenges a lot more corners blind entries blind exits all manner of different corners Uh, it's a wonderful place but that doesn't draw the people from portland to go up there so it'll be interesting to see if this this two race series com- combination next year ends up having something where it's going to force the, the Portlanders to go north to get points mm-hmm. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And if, that, if that's the case, that I think that might be a good thing. But there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of arguments against that, keeping the, the club strong and trying to build each club on its own. And I, that, that goes for across the country, right, is to, to see, see what the health of the uh, of the clubs are in general. Um, CMRA in Texas. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. is if it I, I probably shouldn't have spoke of AFM as strongly because the CMRA is pretty much right there. Right. A lot of fast racers come out of that. Yep. It's probably just because I am on the West Coast and I know all the players and I'm around here a lot that I just don't pay enough attention to CMRA. But for straight up, I bet speed for speed, it's a club that 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 holds it. But we're talking six, eight hour driving distances between some of the tracks. And that's what Texans are used to. And having grown up in College Station at one of the tracks that they used to race at, uh, RIP to Texas World Speedway, I know a lot of the people that are that are involved and they go to Hallett, they go to Dallas, they go to Houston. I mean, that's, that's some distances there, right? People are doing it there and there's a lot of fast people coming out of it. 
right? There still is, and that'll continue. But I don't know what the grids are like. It'd be an interesting thing for us to to see. All right, what does it say? Call up the all the club owners of all the different places across, you know, Laconia, New Hampshire, the places in Florida, uh, Weira, as you were saying. Say, all right, how how is it looking, and what do you think is what do, what do you think are, are the problems right now? What are you facing and what is going to get us back into the heyday of the mid 2000s? Because that seems to be pinnacle yeah. was the 2000s. It's interesting. So talking about uh, grid sizes and filling the grids, one of the things that came up this weekend, we were talking about the women's only classes. Yeah. And, and the debate there on should there be specific women's classes uh, to help promote and bring women into the sport or... Should they just run in the classes of their own? I mean, what, what, what's your opinion on that? Well, I, I'll, I'll give you an anecdote. When I started racing, one of the fastest people in the country on a 125 was a, a woman named Vicki Jackson Bell. She was, uh, is a national champion of the 125 race series. And I was coming in just as she was uh, winding down. Uh, so I had the fortune of racing with her and one of the seminal m- moments of my race career was following her around Willow Springs Motorcycle Club at one national level race. It was a, it was a, uh, a huge moment for me to be able to keep up with her. Right. So I'm coming from that, knowing that any woman is equal or should be considered equal to mm-hmm. any man on a motorcycle, mm-hmm. period. Right. At, at, not just on a motorcycle, but if we're looking at it from a, a motorcycling standpoint, for all intents and purposes, a woman should be just as good, absolutely, as any man in any scenario. The only thing I've seen over the years is sometimes strength, but I don't know. Look at Danny Pedrosa and tell me you need to be strong to ride a MotoGP bike, right? Well, I mean, to be I know he's strong, but does he need to be big and burly and gnarly? He's not a big dude, but look at his arms. Like you have to get like, and I think you know, especially Americans make a lot of jokes about Danny Pedrosa. Next time you see Danny Pedrosa, check out how big his forearms are and how big his biceps are. He's a small guy, but he's got a lot of muscle in that tiny frame. Do you think that that is a uh, 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 something that a woman can't get no. to. And that, and, that, and that's not the point I'm trying to, make. I'm just trying to defend any Pedrosa to be honest. But right. I think, um, and what I've talked to in, in people in the sports world and, and just knowing from my perspective, what it takes to be good at going fast on a motorcycle strength is not one of those things. Me hitting the gym isn't going to make my lap time yep. any better. Other than the fact that you need a certain amount of strength to wrestle a bike and all that, but it's not like me being able to bench 225 is going to do anything sure. for my lap time or sure. if anything, like just some squats, get well, those quads going. Another anecdote, core strength. Another anecdote to that would be uh, a local racer, Mackenzie Anshin. She was racing heavily in the, I don't know, let's just say 2008 through 2012 about okay. in Omra. Her, there was a break point where she was getting a specific lap time and she just couldn't quite get further because of a, a certain, uh, at, at Portland International specifically, there's a, 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 a left-right flick that you've got to do that takes uh, not only strength but body mass to be able to, to wrestle the bike from one side to the other uh, at speed, right? Mm-hmm. You're working against, in triple force pretty heavily, you're working against... Uh, the track itself and also trying to avoid getting past, et cetera. That was the crux of her lap. She couldn't get down 
uh, in lap time because of this one area. It was something that was a big problem for her, but she was like barely 15 or 16 at the time. Teeny, a slight woman, uh, but a soccer player, right? Extremely fit. And that was the only thing that was keeping her. But the question is, is well, is, does it just come with time? Uh, obviously, as you get a little bit older, I mean, you should call her a young woman. She wasn't a woman yet. Uh, eventually, she stopped racing for whatever reason. But it wasn't just that. But mm-hmm. that was definitely something that I think was a major problem for her, right? Well, let me, let me put it to you this way. You want to cheat on the next motorcycle race you go to. Are you going to take anabolic steroids to get stronger? Or are you going to take like... Um, Ritalin or something to yeah, help give you me concentrate lighter. better. Get me lighter. Get me lighter or and or yeah. I guess you just keep keeping concentrate. I never really thought of those things as concentration tools. Well, I, I just of think, course they are. I think sure. what you were just saying you know, earlier about that that pole lap or that pole line, because motorcycling for me, especially when I'm going fast, is so much about hitting that brake marker precisely, hitting that apex precisely, doing the lap the same way I did it before. Yeah, yeah. and that's not a strength thing. That's a that's a mental thing. That's a, that's maintaining stress. That's maintaining breathing. That's thinking on your feet and that's doing everything a a man can do. A woman can do. Right. So if we're going to go back to that and even better, the research tells us women do those things better than men. Sure. Sure. So which is a valid point, which is why I don't think there should be a pandering female only class. I think it's horrible. I'd like to see them all racing with uh, in the same classes as, as men. Do you think, though, that classes like that help pull the woman out of the woodwork that necessarily wouldn't get into racing on her own if it was yes. against the boys? Yes. I mean, in a way, do we need to have both? That It's a valid point, right? So if my opinion is that woman is equal and she needs to be out there with the boys, sure. But you're absolutely right. In some cases, because the industry is the way it is, because life is the way it is, where uh, women by and large are treated as second class, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the way the society has, is it's getting better, but we've been fighting it for ever. And we're going to continue fighting it for a long time. Sexism is not done and it never will be right. So because of that, it might be necessary evil to have a class in to get the people out that are more comfortable riding around with like people, mm-hmm. right? I don't know though. That's an interesting one. I love to get the opinions of some of our faster women racers and say, Hey, what do you think? And would this have helped you? Or do you think it was a detriment that you had to race in this? Or, right? It would be interesting to get the opinions. I think I think down the line we definitely should do a show more dedicated and have people join us and have that discussion. I know from my own experience in casual conversations with women like Melissa Paris, Lena Myers, Lena Moreta, who are in AMA Moto America, um, I know they very much want to be racing against the boys. And some of them go out of their way not to race in the women-only classes. My always my worry, though, is sometimes we listen to their opinions and it's like the self-selecting bias. Like, well, these are also women that have come up through the ranks with the boys and they have that personality or that drive or whatever you want to call it that they're not intimidated by it or it's not an issue for them or they like being one of the guys. And maybe it's the woman that we don't see on the racetrack whose opinion that we really should be getting. And they're probably a lot harder to find. Possibly. And that would be an interesting thing to talk to a few of the local women that I know that are could uh, be fast enough, but just don't do it. But there's a lot of guys that are in the same boat. Sure. Right. A lot. Sure. uh, And that's just the numbers. Right. You look at who who buys motorcycles. I'd be interesting to see what the percentage is 
We're seeing a lot more women getting into it. It's right? increasing. It's roughly 13%. The industry is 13% women now, which is probably up from 9% nine or a decade ago. So that's interesting. Yeah, sure. But a lot of that too, at least this is the American industry, obviously, a lot of that too is skewed by Harley Davidson. One and two new bikes is a Harley Davidson. And Harley Davidson's done a lot to try and bring in uh, minorities, to bring in younger riders, to bring in women. And so when they go and do a marketing campaign and it brings people in and we talk about the industry as a whole, a lot of it has to do with them. But that's not to say that Honda, Yamaha, Ducati, all these other brands aren't doing things as well to, to try and include women and, and make bikes appealing to them. I think the biggest nut, though, is just this idea of like, OK, well, do we make bikes for women or do we make bikes for smaller people, smaller frames? I mean, what what is that definition? What is that? that thing that needs to be in the marketplace that will appeal to them. Yeah. And I think a lot of them don't think about their marketing very well. I would agree with that wholly. Well, same goes for the race series though. Are they, are they marketing towards female riders? No, because there's not enough out there. When they make a formula female class though, it's inviting, I guess, to some. So is it inviting enough to justify it? Possibly. And would I rather at least see some people come in the people that normally wouldn't mm-hmm. come into a club uh, because of that, yeah. But if I'm if I'm calling a spade a spade, it is the the women if they want to be considered equal, if they if you're looking at it purely as a equal human being situation, they should be racing with the the classes, all the other classes. Yeah. My, my only retort to that, and then I think we should move on, is the one thing I really do see as a positive for the women's only class. It's like a bright marquee. It's like a big beacon saying, yeah. "Hey, come race here." You know, we, yeah. we've got a spot for you. And I think that there is some power in that of, of just getting the word out there. Like, oh, hey, come race Omra. We even have a woman's class. You should, you know, that's yeah. one more class you can race yeah. in. You don't have to necessarily even say, hey, we have a women's class. That's that's where you should stay. I think we should move on because we, we've devoted a lot of time to that okay. subject. One of the things I noticed in the news, and this is a track that is near and dear to, I think, both our hearts. Uh, Laguna Seca will not be uh, taken over by the international speedway corporation which is the france family yep a bit NASCAR. of a sigh of relief right yeah, i think it is i think it's interesting because i i always looked at it as a sigh of relief because I, I just don't see isc bringing anything that scramp couldn't um other than money which was never going to happen i just didn't see any benefit there especially does, after seeing what they did with ama pro racing does that mean scramp is going to continue or is it opening it up the contract for somebody else? So the, it'll be, it's going to, the contract process will be more open. I doubt you'll see anyone submit anything other than scramp. Let's put it that way. So it's a very, it's very much a positive win for scramp. I don't think it defaults directly back to them. I know that they, even today just released a statement with the um, Monterey County board of directors, city council, county council you know thanking them and looking forward to addressing some of their concerns and working with them to come to an agreement so it's it's definitely not a done deal for scramp to continue onward but you know over 50 years of experience running that track well that was what i was going to ask so it's 50 years scramp you know it's 57 58 years yeah do you know what the acronym scramp stands for i always forget it's such an awful name yeah, so SCRAMP is the Sports Car Racing Association of Monterey Peninsula. Ah, the Monterey Peninsula. Okay, of course. Right. Yeah. So SCRAMP, uh, yeah, I mean, they basically they basically run the facility. They, they In a way, they're a tenant because they, they lease the track from the county. 
It's a county property. It's a county park. It's not federal. No. Okay. I wasn't sure with the um, the uh, military base. I mm-hmm. thought maybe it was mm-hmm. a federal thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, two different things. All right. But that kind of shows you, like, you go back far enough in time, that's kind of how much of a wasteland that area was, which is hilarious because Pebble Beach grew up out of it. Carmel grew up out of it. And it became this, you know, sleepy little beach town where people kind of retire to. And, you know, good luck finding a thousand square foot cottage for less than a million dollars. It's gorgeous. But but back that long ago, 70 years ago, this was a place that no one wanted where we could build a military base, where we could build a racetrack out of the way of everyone. And then the sleepy little beach town grew up around it. And now obviously the military base has turned into uh, a university or they're trying to because it's put a lot of toxic waste there to be blunt there's a lot of issues in developing that property is it a super fun site i have no idea it makes you wonder i i I don't know anything about toxic waste i just know ordinance like military ordinance that's a that's the rumor is that you can't you don't really want to go hiking around that area off the beaten path because you'll get kalau but i i something that i don't think is the issue i think the issue is like stuff was stored there that you don't want to really be around and it didn't necessarily stay in the container it was in fair enough Uh, i don't think they did any I know like when you drive down Highway 1, you'll see target ranges for, you know, small arms, but I don't think there's any, you know, grenades that haven't gone off or any shells or anything like that. Fair enough. So Um, it's, it's the, the methyl ethyl death of wrath in the area. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, But it, but it is interesting. So, so the relationship between Scramp and the county, it's this, it's very unusual. Scramp's a non or a not-for-profit organization. And so... They're there as this tenant to the county, and their job is to put on world-class racing events, but they're also limited in the sense that they can't really... There's certain things they can't do with the, with the property, and there's certain restrictions with the property that they have to work under, like noise regulations. So that's why you go do a track day at Laguna Seca, you come up close to the course crew, and you roll off the throttle in a way that's not too obvious, go through, and then get back on the gas because it's a 98, I think it's a 98 decibel. It might even be lower. It than might even be lower. 94. Yeah, I was about to say 93 sounds right almost. stock for a while, Ace. As shipped stock GSXR 1000 would trigger it if you were on throttle. Right. Panagale, which has an exhaust that basically points directly at out when you're leaned over as you were right. uh, exiting turn five and passing that meter. Uh, bad, right? Yeah. So you got to be really careful, and that's a huge problem. It right? is. Well, it's a huge, it's a silly problem in a way, but it is a huge problem for them. And I remember when I was there with Skip Barber, we were on KTM RC8s, and it's that same thing where you have that underslung exhaust, and they welded a pipe on it that made it a big U-turn and shot it the opposite direction from the um, yeah the microphone that was they were doing decibel testing with. And so there's that issue and there's there's neighbors that have come up and it's developed and that real estate's expensive. So these are wealthy people with means and connections. And so they've they've put pressure on the track. So it's, you know, there every year there seems to be a shrinking number of days where they don't have a decibel restriction, which is how MotoGP comes to the track, which is how World Superbike came, comes came to the to track, the track so. came to the track. Yeah, um, you don't have to talk in the past tense on that, but that's that's a separate issue. Well, like the Rensport reunions there this weekend, right? Which is the big Porsche mm-hmm. uh, thing. And then there's the Monterey Historic. They're, uh, they're only allowed five or six things a year. So World Superbike, exactly. Monterey Historic, whatever, IMSA slash Yeah, I do IndyCar believe the, the magic like number that. is five. Yeah. It adds up pretty quick. There, there you are. That's all you got, right? Yeah. It's very unfortunate. And, and, and on top of that, you look at a venue like uh, the Circuit of the Americas. 
So that's a racetrack, but also an event center. So they have concerts and they yeah, have conferences and stuff like that. But Laguna Seca can't do that. Sure. They're not allowed to, to use the track in that way. And they get, uh, they have, um, some bicycling stuff where they'll let bicyclists go and ride sure. the track and they see otter classic. Right? Exactly. So that's how they get around that restriction a little bit. And they've, they've thought very creatively on how to work within the confines of Monterey County, but it's a box. Monterey has built a box that Scramp has to operate in. And in many ways it's with one arm behind the back end and probably a lot of ways it's two arms behind your back. And I, I have to at least give credit to Jill Campbell and her team for, for doing that. And that's what for me made the whole ISC thing kind of tragic and why I am happy to see. I don't have a lot of faith in the France family's ability to understand motorcycles coming from a car culture because we didn't see anything favorable with that with AMA Pro Racing. No, and the, the conspiracy theory from my standpoint is that the France family will do anything it can to diminish other race series so that NASCAR stays as high level as it can. I know that sounds like a horrible conspiracy theory, but it's hard not to look at the DMG era of of AMA Pro Road Racing mm-hmm. and not think that it was sabotaged by inept fools, right? It was horrible. So the question is, is were they inept or was there actual, were they doing that on purpose? It was so bad that it's plausible. And that's the worry about Laguna is that they go and say, okay, here's here's one of the the critical racetracks in the United States, critical for, for world-level recognition of a racetrack. Laguna is one of them in the world, right? It, it's up there with the Nürburgring, with Monza, with Silverstone. I mean, it's a, it's a well-known track. Even though Formula One doesn't go there, the corkscrew, mm-hmm. it's a big deal. It's iconic, yeah. What could they do to kind of, of course, keep it going, but just barely and not let it grow and not let it do anything? That's my, of course, horrible, addled, conspiracy theory, uh, theory head, right? I I do not agree with any of that, but I will say a lot of DMG's decisions to me always seemed like pick the worst thing you could do and then go do that. Yep. So sorry. So that that's what my head goes. <laughs> I, I think that's right? fair. I don't agree, but I think that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it will be good to see uh, uh, what happens going forward. I know that the facility needs a lot of money to um, be brought up to not to code, but to make improvements that are are necessary and to obviously put money into the track to help keep and bring in more world-class events and and premium events that will continue to obviously bring money into Monterey County. So it'll be interesting to see how they strike that deal or or what accord gets made between a scramp or whomever in the county. The county itself, though, the people that are there, it's one thing that's always the tractors of the event, people that don't like going there are always frustrated about how poorly it's it, the, the, the general area responds to the influx of motorcycle racing. Cause it really is a quiet community. I would go to that area for work and go there and off season. It is just the sleepiest little mm-hmm. calm little town. And it is wild when all the bikes come in. And I'm, I would imagine that a lot of people there don't view it favorably and could give a crap less, even though for the those of us that are in motorsport, it's a pinnacle mm-hmm. area, right? So I don't, I don't think they do care that much about it in the area. No, right? they don't. And I, and I get it. I get it. Because because the reason that area has developed is because of how peaceful and quiet it is. My only retort to that would be the racetrack for, for a vast majority of the detractors. The racetrack was there before you were. Yes, absolutely. So you're the one that moved next to a racetrack that has this history of doing events. 
sorry if you didn't do your due diligence when you were buying your house, but yep. I don't see why that's the racetrack's fault. I don't think that arguments can go very far with people in Monterey. And I think um, considering how many residents of the population probably don't own a business in the area, yeah, I think it's another big factor. I think anyone that owns a small business in Monterey County is stoked when World Superbike shows up. You would up. hope so. Oh, absolutely. There's there's no doubt on mind. The, the, the hotels are all packed. They're all charging inflated prices. Every restaurant's slammed. Gas stations are selling, you know, buckets of gas. You know, the CHP is making plenty of money. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and it goes all the way out to Salinas. But I if mean, you're I, know right, I was oh, staying yeah. in Salinas. Salinas, Gilroy. Sand City, all yeah. of that, right? It's not just Monterey proper. It's all the way around. Yeah, yeah. But if you're a retiree who's there, who's just enjoying the quieter, oh, quieter years of your life, yeah. I, can, I can get it. I don't have a lot of sympathy, but I get it. I don't have any sympathy. Oh, you're just cold-hearted. Like I am cold-hearted, and yeah. I gladly lane split next to that blue hair in the Buick. Absolutely, <laughs> brap. You know it is funny. Like I always forget this until I get there. Um, when you drive around Seaside, you drive around Carmel on on Highway One, or or even on 101. Sometimes when you're more inland, they drive so much slower. It's yeah. it's actually like driving here in Portland. It's, like it's Portland, yeah. It, it's it? Sure. it's very similar. And I forgot about that because like, oh yeah, speed limit sixty five, but you're gonna do fifty in that in that fast lane. And just <laughs> sit there all day, aren't you, sweetheart? Mm, yes. Uh, I th- it makes me think of one more thing about this. When I guess this probably was early two thousands, two thousand two thousand one, something like that was my first time going there. I remember riding up there uh, on my CBR six hundred F two. I was going there to work uh, because I was working at a shop called Pro Italia, which was based out of L.A., and they had mm-hmm. have a booth on Ducati Island at the time, right? Yeah. And entering from the coast, so I had taken the Pacific Coast Highway up because it's a, a, an amazing road, right? And getting into the Monterey area was one of the most exciting, tantalizing, amazing times just entering the city even though you can't really tell the, the way the highways are worked and taking the highway to get out the whatever it is the 68 that gets to the track is just such an amazing thing and I, I i wish everybody would have the same experience to get to that track the first time starting in los angeles riding up the coast getting to experience the beauty of the california coast mm-hmm. going through big sur and then entering this place and getting up to this track where this fervent action is happening it's just an amazing experience and i hope it never goes away that's the moneymaker going through big sur for me i yeah. I, I'm, I always came from san francisco so I, I got denied that but I, the few times i've sure done the pch from south to north big sur is beautiful with that i don't know any good way to segue from redwood trees back to motorcycle racing so i'm just gonna say speed block yellow and black r1 right that's that's pretty amazing yeah, too. That's a good sight to see. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> what I'll, I've got an anecdote for that one as well. Is back and I. I'm sorry if I can't remember whether it was it 05. It was 05. I think that was the first year that Laguna was a MotoGP race. If if yeah, it had to be. You're gonna have to look that up. Okay. Bottom line is, in 2005, I was working for Team Graves Yamaha as a chassis technician. And because it was a big deal to go to Laguna Seca, and because at the time it was the 55th anniversary, right? Mm-hmm. That's about right, because we're 60-something on. We're celebrating 60 years. That's what we're doing. So it was the 50th anniversary. Sorry, 50th anniversary of whatever part of Yamaha. I don't know if it was racing, if it was... It's Yamaha. 
Yamaha Motor, period. Yamaha Motor Corporation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it seems like it should be older than that, but okay. So it does. 50 years. Well, you have to think uh, a lot of these, because I, I just did the math. So Honda will celebrate its 67th birthday or 68th birthday this week, end of this week. Huh. There's t- tomorrow, actually. Today we're recording on Wednesday, so we just yep. gave it away. But uh, by the time this podcast comes out, uh, Honda will have just turned another year older. And it's because all these corporations came out of a post-World War yes, II Japan. Yes, of course. So they existed before. So we were talking about Yamaha Motor Corporation. Right. Yamaha, Yamaha pianos and or music equipment was probably going oh, at they the were, turn of the century, right? I don't know Yamaha's history as well, but I'm sure they were building all sorts of things Fair before. Enough. Bottom line, though, is that the Motor Corporation, 50 years, and that was what, at, at this time, that was what was going on. Well, we had a surprise. All of the factory Yamahas and all the Graves Yamahas, which was essentially one big mass of, of factory-backed Yamaha goodness, where we were running blue. The, the, the colors of Yamaha racing in the U.S. were blue. Uh, for the, at the time in the world, it was red and white. Well, they decided that they were going to do uh, this one-off yellow. Mm-hmm. Well, the MotoGP bikes had shown up right out of the box as yellow. We were surprising everybody. We show up, and on Sunday, we all had to get to the track super early and switch all the bodywork on every Yamaha R6 and every Yamaha R1 to this to this yellow to race the the support races essentially, and it was really cool, yeah. right? I remember the, that livery. It was an amazing thing. So that was the speed block coming back, and just what an amazing thing. The coolest part for me was I I wheel the bike out going from the the tent uh, where you are in the main pit to the hot pit, and I'm I'm walking it up with a stand on it. It's just me. Um, and there's Giacomo Agostini just milling about in the crowd. And he looks at me with, and then has this big ass smile on his face. And then it gives me the thumbs up. And it was like, oh my God, right? Giacomo Agostini, umpteen time world championship, just, just saw me wheeling this thing up and, you know, gave me a smile. It was the coolest thing ever. So yeah, I have a, I have a little bit of a soft spot for that because it does look cool. And of course, anybody that knows anything about Kenny Roberts and the, Mm -hmm. and the era of the Bumblebee bikes that came probably through flat track. It'd be interesting to know, but I have a, I have a strange feeling it probably either came from motocross or flat track before it was on any one of those. It's that whole grand national championship. So yeah, I mean, I don't know if the first bike was a flat track bike or a road race bike, but, um, it's that era and it's that that history from the halcyon time of motorcycling from that late 70s yeah. on any sunday era right it, it holds a lot so it's cool to see that they're doing it again the gold wheels it looked like it had an akrapovich pipe yep which was interesting i would assume that that is a an aftermarket thing it would make mm. you wonder if it's shipped no. with it no, it as with it. stock yep which is interesting because they have to do some strange things to be able to get that going right mm, no not really um so so this is probably a deeper dive than, than anyone ever really wants to know, but it's fun at cocktail parties with motorcyclists. Akrapovich has really made a push the last couple of years in its B2B channels. And so like uh, I'm sure you've seen with your experience in Ducati, they've kind of pushed Trimignani out of the way and are now to, the sure. uh, preferred Ducati performance exhaust. OEM in some cases. Yeah, and, and they've been making the exhausts without their label on it for OEMs for quite some time. Yeah. Um, they've been doing a lot of work in MotoGP, but they've definitely stepped it up the last five years and really the, they've stepped it up a lot in the last year or two in making these sort of partnerships. So they have a partnership with uh, Yamaha and they can make a, I mean, they're, they're perfectly capable of making a street legal exhaust. So that's a Nekropovich exhaust that will meet 
it's a catalyzed carb legal exhaust. Yeah, I, I don't even think it's probably Euro it's a four. slip on Euro three or Euro four. Well, if they're selling it in 2016, it'll be Euro four. Yep. Um, but it's it's you know it's it's more of a branding effort. Is it as good as the pipe sure. that you would buy okay. from your dealer to to go no. on a racetrack? No. But it's an Akrapovich branded pipe. Akrapovich makes some of the best exhausts on the market. They're not even a sponsor of Asphalt and Rubber or the podcast. I have no problem saying they probably make some of the most beautiful exhausts on the market. I'm a huge fan of them. Always have. Always Always have. have. Always. Any bike, any model. Yep. That's the one to get. Um, That being said, send one to me, please. Uh, (laughs) That's the issue is that they're very expensive. They're they're they're, extremely expensive. They iterate on their systems as well. When we were... were, uh, Putting the other bikes uh, back in that era, 2005, they um, that the Yamaha, right? Mm-hmm. The guys, it was a strange thing because the all the Graves R1s were, of course, with Graves exhaust systems. All the factory uh, Yamaha 600s, which were built in Cypress at the factory, mm-hmm. were Kropovich, and it was always a wonder, like how the heck did Chuck Graves not was he not able to do it? And straight up, at the time, he didn't quite have the production facility to make the exhaust iterations that they needed to, to get the power out of the bikes, they would be on like revision three of the Kropovich system by Daytona in March. Yeah. Right. They would have started in September with the new bike and they'd be on revision three or four Evo Mm -hmm. by the time they got to Daytona with different tapers, different head lengths, different taper lengths, different silencers, et cetera, et cetera, because they are, animals at that facility what is it in uh only two slovakia slovenia there's only two things i know about slovenia epic skiing great exhaust pipes <laughs> that's all i know about it fair enough that used to be a part of the Yugos- i never heard anything that about and it's that. the only form of yugoslavian state that didn't get mired down in the whole breakup really yeah okay so they managed to escape when i was at the un so i was in the un i used to prosecute war criminals from the former yugoslavia Slovenia was never an issue. They were good. Bosnia. So good old Igor is okay. He never had any troubles. <laughs> Serbia, all sorts of trouble. Croatia, all sorts of trouble. Slovenia, just and I think it is because they are they are northern. They're closer into to Western Europe, and and there's some less ethnic struggles. But we've gone far down the rabbit hole. Interesting. It's definitely an interesting. But yeah, it is. It's one of those things. Like it's just. Like a crop of, they're just, they just, they make such a good pipe. That's what's what they focus on as a company. Um, one of the things I always found really interesting, especially on the Ducati side of it with Terminani, Terminani never made a really good pipe. Every pipe I've ever seen of theirs, the welds are kind of junky. And you sit there and you're just like, they why make is, decent pipes, but, but they, they were cost. They're so expensive for cost, what they are. But they were cost driven on the manufacturing side. And everybody would be very disappointed at these boogery, obviously mechanical welds that yeah. just weren't what you would expect from a, you know, you're buying an exhaust system that's between three grand and five grand for some of these bikes. It, better it was be always amazing. a bit disappointing. And right? that's why I thought it was a really smart move when, when Ducati's made the push to Kropovich because now I can at least justify, well, I mean, it's hard to justify that a $5,000 exhaust on a motorcycle, but at least I, I, the quality is there where it makes a little more sense. You're like, well, you're paying a little bit more. You're definitely paying a lot more. But at least you're getting something more than it's on the market. Whereas, like, you know, Terminani, you might as well just go out there and get a D&D exhaust and call it even. Hey, now, that's a Texan exhaust. <laughs> Some of the best exhausts in the nation. The thing is that they're just not finished that well. But I'm not going to lie. That's actually extremely good power production with D&Ds uh, over the years. I'm not, I don't know what they're at now because they didn't 
accelerate with the rest of the industry. I'm not even sure they're still in business. That's you, that's you that's how right. far I haven't seen them in the industry. You you might be right. Uh, and back to one thing I said. I used the name Igor. I wasn't kidding. His name is Igor Akrapovich. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I just wanted to make sure I w- that nobody thought I was using that as a you know I'm not calling him Vlad the Impaler or something. Right. It's his name is Igor. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, weren't we talking about a motorcycle? <laughs> yes. So the R1, which is pre is, do you know, is the, is the, the livery I've been, I, I read is on the, the yellow livery is going to be on the standard model, not the R1M. That is correct. As far as I know, the, the thing though, is the only information I've seen on it is for the European market. Ah. We will have to wait and see what Yamaha, North America, Yamaha, USA. Yeah, but they just raced the final Moto America race with the yellow livery and with yellow leathers and all that. And then they had Colin Edwards with his yellow helmet from that 2005 MotoGP. He was riding it. So, you know, it's coming. I would be very surprised if it didn't. Because it's just, it's right? Just, it's well, they've, they've done it before. They did it with the 2005 R1. Sure. Six, uh, 2006. Two, sorry. You're the right. R1 the LE, LE yeah. came out with that livery. Yes. Yeah, you're correct. So it's, it's, it's in there. And obviously... The reaction in the American media has been really positive. All the comments on our site have been extremely just shut up and take my money. I'd be very surprised if we didn't see that in the U.S. market. But, you know, weird things happen with the American subsidiaries and the European ones and stuff like that. And we don't necessarily get everything they do. I do know that they're making more R1Ms for production. Yep. So that'll be good. Um, It makes you wonder what the demand is. Like, did they... Why did they... It would be fascinating to hear the story of why they didn't just come out swinging with as many of them as possible. But maybe they're just gun shy because the thousand cc sport bike market and isn't exactly hot, right? I tell you, you know, with the R1M for me, it was always like uh, I would never, I would, if I was making a purchasing decision, I wouldn't buy one just because I look at it and just like, hmm, I'm gonna get how much more motorcycle for that extra four grand, totally. five grand. Sure. Doesn't do it for me. So Was I it the electronic suspension? Maybe lightweight wheels? Electronic suspension. There's a more sophisticated software package. It has the I, the six-axis IMU, whereas the stock one doesn't have that? Is that true? Uh, No, that's not true. Okay. No, it's it's like uh, data logging, data recording. Oh, yeah. Okay, got it. Um, no, that's that's the IMU and the R1 is very much in the base model and very much the secret sauce of why that bike is so awesome. But I could see like the idea of, okay, well, we're only going to make... 500 of these so that's why it's $21,000 sure that could be a part of it yeah yeah why not so but the bottom line is that redoing it anyway saying all right we're bringing as many as we can and hopefully all the buzz that's come out from the year of every good club racer getting on one of those things and being immediately fast and not really showing that they're going to blow up even though I've heard a couple of them having issues Generally, they're they're showing to be fairly robust, right? Yeah, I haven't heard too many issues, and you've probably talked to more club races than I have. Um, so I'm I wouldn't know what's beyond just first generation teething issues and not. The only thing I've heard from the professional teams is the rear pumps, the rear suspension pumps, and the rear linkage pumps, and that was uh, an initial struggle for the Moto America teams when they were testing at. Circuit of the Americas, and I know that was an issue with... Um, but they got that sorted out. Everybody's got that sorted out, right? I would imagine so. Yeah. I, haven't heard, I haven't heard anything about it That's since, a, let's put it that way. Sure. Some, the same goes with Panigale, right? It's, it's always finding that balance between mechanical grip right. and a suspension that can be given to the general populace where you can have a rider and a big-ass passenger 
and have it safely go down the road with a good suspension rate. Mm-hmm. So the compromise is that the pro- the progression of the linkage ratio has to be so extreme to to meet the lawyer factor so that the bike is safe with the passenger mm-hmm. that they end up going really far and and you need a flat ratio generally to be a good road racer and they aren't so then they have to make you have to do workarounds whether that be adjusting other parts of the bike or it's always a compromise right yeah, and that, and that's that's probably that i'm total. this is total conjecture but that's my guess on that particular bike because it's the same problem for pretty much every other right. you know road-based bike that doesn't come out as a special race bike right. any if it has a kickstand mount on the frame it's a compromise as far as i'm concerned so there's that fair enough fair enough the the only thing i wanted to tack on to this conversation before we wrap it up the rumor i've heard is uh since we're talking about bikes that are coming back into production or have met their production quota, the uh, Honda RC213VS mm-hmm. sold out. Was that a surprise? How many were they going to make? They were going to make about 220 of them. Yeah, well, at $185,000-ish. $200,000-ish, probably. Let's call it $200,000. That's all said and done, yeah. No, there's enough people that have, I mean, Honda. It's Honda, man. NR750, RC30, RC45. It's a, they have a, a long history of making special bikes that are exclusive. And I can see plenty of people that want to ride one of the bikes that's been one of the, one of the, uh, a derivative of the fastest bike of the past 20 years, right? The RC211V and on, right? So I can easily see that there's enough, there's enough cash out there, man. People that want to wave the, wave that bike in front of uh, everybody like a phallus and say, look at, look how awesome I am. Yeah, totally. So here's a number $40 million in revenue. Interesting. That's a lot. Sure. I mean, I, I'm sure the cost of it, I'm sure that's not it's anywhere near still a what Halo they're taking project. home. Yeah. yeah. It's still a halo. But, it, but it's interesting because when you talk about like what the, the Honda MotoGP project cost them probably internally, the number it's like a hundred, 150, South of two hundred million dollars. So the idea that like you know, selling a couple of these street how, bikes. And how many does Ducati Desmosedichis were there? A thousand. Fifteen hundred. Fifteen hundred. Do yeah. the math. Fifteen hundred, and let's just say they're sixty-five grand a pop. I can't remember because there was a a back and forth. There was initial cost, and that was more. So yeah. how you're much? Ju- is you're that? just under a hundred million. It's ninety-seven million. Ninety-seven point five. Interesting. Because I know how much trouble those bikes were over the course of the years that they were in their three-year warranty. Sure. And I can just imagine oh, yeah. the costs. Do you, do you think Ducati made money on that? I, I don't know. The day? That's, the, that's the most amazing thing is that you really have a tough time. Because can you imagine how much it costs to industrialize a MotoGP bike? Now, a lot of people think that that bike is basically an analog. It's almost no. the exact same thing. It was mm. nothing. There was not a a part shared on that bike to a dozen paints, not even the same shade, nothing. Right. Um, the, the project manager for Moto Sis, when I got hired at Moto Sis, Federico Cioni, he was the project manager for at least the engine on the Desma Sidici. So I got to hear a lot of interesting things at the time. And that, that thing was a very expensive proposition, a very much a halo project, completely awesome that they did it. No doubt. Absolutely. Right storied and will be storied for the rest of it. I mean, it's a timeless design, even though it looks like Admiral Akbar, um, I almost bought one earlier this year. I can see it. I can understand. And that's what will happen, right? Yeah. Those will become just like just the, the Paul Smart uh, green frame, the, the the various different bikes that, that have been in the, 
and the Ducati lore. That's going to be one of them for sure. But the question is, is was it worth it to them? I, I, it's got to have been. It's got to have been because they decided to make a freaking Super Legera. And I, I know that's <laughs> not that. That was not nearly as much of a stretch. But the fact that they decided to do that, I mean, that's all carbon bodywork and magnesium frame. And I mean, there's some trick stuff on, on a Super Legera. Yeah. So it's a risk. It's a yeah. risk by doing it. But I'm sure they did that right. I mean, you have to justify it probably in as like a loss leader. If you didn't make money on it, I'm sure what it did for the brand and for the halo of it and the fact that the Desmo CGRR came out how many years ago and we're still talking about sure. it and we'll be talking about the super Legera for probably a decade to come. And the Honda, cause the Honda and will the come Honda. out and people will Absolutely. start riding them. There's going to be de-restriction kits or whatever's going to be put on the bikes, right? Yeah, mm. whatever they're going to, some you're going to get sent to Japan to go ride the special super whammy version. That's basically the same bike that, 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 uh, Nikki Hayden's riding this year as, as, poorly performing as that bike is relative to the others sure. it's still a pretty wicked machine right sure. so somehow some way it's going to get out there and that'll just contribute to the lore of riding a pinnacle the apogee of motorcycling in circa 2015 right that's it attainable yeah. attainable yeah. even uh, if it's a barely attainable it's attainable and 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 for as much grief as I've given Honda for the execution marketing and delivery on that bike, it pained me so greatly not to be able to go to that press launch. And that pain was focused right about your collarbone, right around my collarbone. Although a little bit in your, in ultimately your the, the injury wasn't the reason I couldn't go. Um, it was more of a logistics thing. And, and the fact that I got a voicemail while I was in Europe and I couldn't respond to it in time. But so yeah, sad. I, there's no way I was going to be able to, even so if, even sad. if I'd gotten that call, I would have, oh. but hopefully we're trying to work something out with Honda where I'll get a chance, probably not this year. Cause we're going to be fighting the weather, but maybe fingers crossed, uh, get a chance to hop on one. It all just kind of depends on there's X number of those bikes that are for show and for press and sure. for things like that. And it just depends on one of them landing in. No, right, maybe they'll decide, you know what? We, we'd love to see a picture of that bike with Mount hood in the background. We're going to send you one up into Portland. Here's an idea. Terra Corsa. Oh yeah. Honda. TKC eighties fit right up. <laughs> right. I tell it's, it's, you know, five cans, six cans of sand camo. It's home Depot. Terra Corsa. I guarantee you, I guarantee you if we did a Terra RC, Yakuza men would show up and kill us. <laughs> I guarantee it. There's no doubt in my mind. That would be, oh. it would be such an affront and insult to the entire <laughs> Japanese culture that like Honda wouldn't even have to hire them. They would I, do it for free. I'm surprised a dead horse head. Well, not that's, that's kind of redundant, but a horse head wasn't in my bed. Once, once I, once I completed the terror course, I, yeah. I expected the Italians to be pretty, pretty up in arms about that. Yeah. All right. Uh, is that, uh, is that the last, do we have anything else? I had something. And I think I lost it. So oh, dude, why? No, we can't. Oh geez. Ending really? on a down, down note. I, right. I forget what it was, but it, it, we, we'll pick it up next show. If I remember it. All right, well then, um, kickstands up. Time to go. That that's your that's your sign off. No, sure. All right, good talk. See you out there. Later. <laughs>